This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, uh, really glad to be with you. Uh, a great topic, uh, I think a really important topic for us. Some of us were talking last night about the, um, the topic of beauty, and I, I think one of the things about beauty and where we are in our culture right now, uh, well, two things really. One is that I think we, we all feel and experience a lot of ugliness in our culture right now, but also that we're, uh, we find ourselves pulled back into ideological battles where we're constantly concerned about whether we can trust other people, whether uh, we can engage in conversation with them, whether we can fully listen and give ourselves to others in conversation. Beauty is one of those experiences where we are vulnerable, right? Where we're drawn into something that we're not fully in control of. This is part of the classical conception of Eros, which is of course aroused by the beautiful. And, and various degrees of, be of the beautiful, as we know from Plato's Symposium, but that willingness to allow ourselves to be vulnerable to the beautiful, to be moved and pulled by it. Even, you know, we were talking last night, well, what about if it's a disordered uh, experience of beauty? Well, if Augustine hadn't been moved initially by disordered experience of beauty, I don't think he would have ended up where he ended up. Now, he needed to move beyond disordered experiences of beauty. But the very fact that he had a soul that could be deeply moved by the beautiful enabled him to move in a certain direction. So I'm gonna give a talk today. My talks are pretty much connected. I also owe a real debt of gratitude to the Institute of Human Ecology because about three years ago, uh, they helped fund a sabbatical uh, during which I wrote a book uh, that's now at Press, uh, Notre Dame Press on uh, Maritan and 20th century art. Uh, and some of what you're getting uh, over the next few days is, is pulled from that, some not. So let me begin. In consecutive sections, 86 and 87, in the encyclical Laudato Si, Pope Francis cites first Thomas Aquinas and second St. Francis. And these are both lengthy quotations. Appealing to Thomas's teaching on the appropriateness of God creating many and varied creature, Francis writes, the universe as a whole, in all its manifold relationships, shows forth the inexhaustible riches of God. St. Thomas Aquinas wisely noted that multiplicity and variety come from the intention of the first agent, who willed that what was wanting to one in the representation of the divine goodness might be supplied by another. Inasmuch as God's goodness could not be represented fittingly by any one creature. Hence, the Pope goes on, we need to grasp the variety of things in their multiple relationship. He then quotes at length from St. Francis's Canticle, it's the largest, the longest quotation from that, and here is an excerpt. Praise be to you, my Lord, with all your creatures, especially Sir Brother Son, who is the day and through whom you give us light, and he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor, and bears a likeness of you, most high. Praise be you, my Lord, through Sister Moon and the stars, in heaven you formed them clear and precious and beautiful. The juxtaposition of Saints Thomas and Francis bears, at least to me when I first read it, a striking and very surprising resemblance to G.K. Chesterton's conjoining of the two. In a chapter entitled The Two Friars in his book on Thomas Aquinas, Chesterton suggests that a comparison of Thomas 
with St. Francis brings us most rapidly to the real question of the life and work of St. Thomas. The two approach, Chesterton writes, the same problem from different angles. From the reputation of Laudato Si as an encyclical, one would not suspect the presence of such Chestertonian insights. I would argue that Laudato Si is in fact a deeply philosophical and theological document, the working assumption of which is that what we most need today is a theologically reimagined, uh, a theologically informed reimagining of the place of human persons in the entirety of the created cosmos. Francis finds in the two friars a metaphysics and poetics of creation that supply a remedy for what ails the contemporary world. In that encyclical, Francis discerns beneath contemporary ecological problems a metaphysical and existential affliction of the human person who is now lost in the cosmos. The source of the crisis is a misconception of human freedom as radical autonomy. We have forgotten, he writes, that man is not only a freedom which he creates for himself, man does not create himself. He is spirit and will, but also nature. Francis echoes Benedict in a number of places on the, the problem of radical anthropocentrism. Creation is harmed, Benedict writes, where we ourselves have the final word, where everything is simply our property and we use it for ourselves alone. The misuse of creation begins when we no longer recognize any higher instances than ourselves, when we can see nothing else but ourselves. I recall, I think, a New Yorker cartoon some years ago of a guy sitting in a recliner with a remote looking at a TV screen that had had an image of himself uh, sitting in a recliner looking at a TV screen. We'll only recognize ourselves. Francis calls this the anthropocentric or technocratic paradigm which sees no intrinsic value in lower beings. Although the Catholic critique of the technocratic paradigm is now at least a century old, official Catholic teaching has embraced it more fully. As Michael Hanby notes in an essay on Laudato Si, with its focus on our ecological crisis, it constitutes a significant development of recent Catholic thought in its critique of this anthropocentric paradigm. But the critique of radical anthropocentrism must also reckon with another equally extreme and equally erroneous position, namely what Pope Francis called biocentrism, which reacting against the exaltation of the human will accords no special value to human beings. I'm, I'm gonna mention in passing, I have a longer argument in the book, but I, I think, and these are really complicated things, but I think you can make an argument that the anthropocentric model represents one strain of Enlightenment rationalism, Enlightenment progressive rationalism. You can see the roots of it in that famous passage from Descartes' discourse on method, right? We have, I have a method that will render us masters and possessors of nature, where nature becomes raw material. Biocentrism has really striking resemblances to certain forms of Romanticism, right, which are reacting against Enlightenment rationalism. I do think that the church has spent, or, or popes and uh, intellectuals in the church have spent a good deal of time reckoning with the enlightenment paradigm. Not nearly as much, there are some folks, but not nearly as much with the biocentric or romantic model. Okay. Our predicament would be dire enough were we simply opting for one or the other of these two 
mutually opposed efficient understandings. It's exacerbated by the fact, and I think this is quite right, that as Francis says, we vacillate in a constant schizophrenia between the two with little awareness of alternatives. Heralded as groundbreaking because of its attention to the issue of environmental devastation, the document's roots in the Catholic philosophical tradition and in recent papal writing were all but ignored in the popular press. The American media, of course, focused almost exclusively on the climate change portion. Time magazine went so far as to label the prayers at the end the prayers on climate change. Francis could not be clearer about the depth and breadth of the crisis. If the present ecological crisis, he writes, is one small sign of the ethical, cultural, and spiritual crisis of modernity, we cannot presume to heal our relationship with nature and the environment without healing all fundamental human relationships. The most audacious claim in the document is not the affirmation of climate change, but the insistence that to have a coherent and effective environmental philosophy requires both an anthropology and I think a cosmology. And the argument is even more complicated than that because the document provides a kind of genealogy of the origin of this spiritual crisis, considers, if at times only briefly, rival genealogies, and offers a metaphysics of creation with its roots in Aquinas, but that's open to the insights of evolutionary biology. I think it also makes a case, and this is more pertinent to our topics for this week, for a distinctively theological understanding of the human person as maker, homo father. The need for a renewal of human making is one of the little noticed features of the encyclical. Another has to do with the dispositions that need to be fostered in human souls if we are to avert the crisis. Dispositions of wonder, receptivity, gratitude, and humility. And they are fundamentally theological. They reach their culmination in acts of praise, as the very title of the document, Laudato Si, indicates. Francis' views on technology are complex. He's not a Luddite. Technology, he writes, has remedied countless evils, especially in the fields of medicine, engineering, and communications. It is natural and appropriate for the human species to modify nature for useful purposes. The Christian insistence on divine transcendence, he writes, helped to demythologize nature and pave the way for modern science's investigation of its intelligibility. Francis's primary worry has to do with the rise of techno technocracy, or what Naomi Oreskes, uh, a professor of history of science at Harvard, calls technophidism, which is blind faith. I had someone say, is, is technophidism is that a, a megachurch with a big screen in the front? And I said, no, that's not technophidism. Technophidism is blind, is blind, although that's a, it's a good line to use, but uh, is blind faith in technology uh, as always and everywhere providing progress. The conundrum of modern technology is that our ability to direct it in an ethical way has not kept up with our capacity to deploy its vast resources. The crisis that we're in has much to do with a shift from the conception of the human person as receptive of the order and beauty of the cosmos to one that accentuates the human capacity to transform nature, even human nature. Yet the corrective is not to eliminate or merely chastise the creative aspirations of human persons. Francis underscores their intrinsic dignity and, uh, and worth, and in their interaction with the natural world, uh, he says, this is a mark of the nobility of the human vocation. Persons can participate in God's 
creative action. Poesis or art or creation arises from and fosters in viewers, readers, the ecological virtues of receptivity, wonder, humility, and gratitude. Francis's corrective points in the direction of a recovery of artistic and human stewardship and a corresponding aesthetics of wonder and praise. As much as this encyclical seems quite contemporary, it draws, as I've already noted, repeatedly and richly upon pre-modern sources. Francis's focus is on the way the two friars, Thomas and Francis, articulate the place of persons in relation to one another in the natural world and on how that articulation can inform contemporary discussions. Francis shares Chesterton's view that the great friars were the opposite of the benighted representatives of the so-called dark ages they are often presented as being. Instead, they were responsible, as Chesterton says, for a reformation of the church and a renaissance of learning, a renewal of appreciation of the natural world as a gift of God. Chesterton calls this a movement of enlargement, a development of doctrine. Each in his own way, Chesterton said, had a liberating and humanizing effect on religion, one in the order of imagination and the other in the order of intellect. In Thomas's embrace of Aristotle, he affirms the integrity and intelligibility of all created substances, while Francis welcomes and praises the beauty of creatures. This has nothing to do with pagan nature worship. Instead, it is rooted in an affirmation of the incarnation what Chesterton calls the whole staggering story of the God-man in the Gospels. Something like this logic is present in Laudato Si. And contrary to the view that Christianity allows for or encourages treating the natural world as mere raw material, Francis argues that Orthodox theology provides a foundation for sound ecology, one in which natural and human ecology are inseparable. The distinctive features of this Catholic ecology set it apart from both anthropocentrism and biocentrism. If the former, as I mentioned earlier, is a variant of Enlightenment rationalism, the latter bears striking similarities to Romanticism. Now, for Romantic environmentalism, St. Francis, or at least a version of him, has always been a hero. Uh, if you um, if you want to get a, a very good read on St. Francis, why isn't that the Dominican, we had to wait for a Dominican to write the, the, the best book on Francis, but uh, Father Augustine Thompson's book is really terrific uh, on in lots of ways. Um, uh, the very title, this is really interesting, the very title of the third chapter of Laudato Si, The Human Roots of the, Eco of the Ecological Crisis, calls to mind this really influential essay by Lynn White entitled The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. White's thesis is that the roots of the current crisis can be found in the Christian teaching that it is God's will that man exploit nature for man's own ends. One can, uh, uh, for an alternative healthy model of religious ecology, White turns to Francis of Assisi. You might notice a problem here, right? Christianity is the source Francis, so Francis is not a Christian. Uh, he actually celebrates Francis as a heretic who departs from the orthodox Christian arrogance toward nature. Francis offers, I think, an implicit rejoinder to White. To the accusation that Christianity is the source of our ecological crisis, he provides a twofold response. 
The origins consist rather in a certain strain of modernity, radical anthropocentrism, and a proper understanding of St. Francis suggests a thoroughly orthodox alternative to the model of autonomous human control over nature. He explicitly addresses and refutes the thesis that scripture countenances tyrannical anthropocentrism in section 68. So Pope Francis is thus committed, at least implicitly, to a very different genealogy of modernity than that which is prominent in the most influential narratives. Woven into this analysis of contemporary ecological problems is a diagnosis of the metaphysical and existential affliction of human persons. As Walker Percy writes in Lost in the Cosmos, he was writing this a while ago, we live in a deranged age. What would you have said about you have hyper-deranged? I don't know where you go from. We live in a deranged age. More deranged than usual. Because despite great scientific and technological advances, man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he is doing. We face a broad and fundamentally spiritual crisis. What is needed, Francis thinks, is a kind of healing and reconciliation. In one of Chesterton's most remarkable observations about St. Francis, he writes, St. Francis walked the world like the pardon of God. His appearance marked the moment when men could be reconciled not only to God, but to nature, and most difficult of all, to themselves. Chesterton, of course, detects a deep congruence in his writing on Thomas Aquinas between Christian and Aristotelian themes and uh, in both Francis and Aquinas on the reality and goodness of the natural world and of the human body. Francis regarded himself as an animal, referring to himself as a donkey. Thomas provides doctrinal clarity in his claim that the soul without a body is not a human person. The critique of the modern roots of the ecological crisis. All the popes speak as one, all the recent popes, in focusing on the mistaken view of freedom as radical autonomy which ends up allowing us to see, encouraging us to see the human body as raw material that can be used for whatever purposes we might have. Human choice is reduced here to consumer preference. Know that um, Bobby George had a, a piece in um, First Things a few years ago arguing that the heresy of Gnosticism had reemerged in this denial of the material world and, uh, and of the reality and significance of the human body and I think we would be a lot better off if we had actually revived Gnosticism because Gnosticism actually believed in a spiritual order that was higher. I would say what we actually are afflicted with is Gnostic consumerism uh, with respect to the material world. Such a model of human choice generates the throwaway culture that has become a tagline for, Saint Fran for Pope Francis. The accent on the dignity of the human body and the goodness of the material world revives medieval themes. The intellectual origin of our alienation from nature can be traced to the loss of the Aristotelian and Thomistic language of soul as form of the body. Whether early modern conceptions of human, nation, of human nature are materialist or dualist, they agree in repudiating an understanding of soul and body as a unity. Both are tempted to see the physical world as raw material to be manipulated according to the will of the human agent. 
This is what Percy and others have identified as the modern heresy of angelism, the denial that the material world and our bodies are shot through with moral and spiritual significance. And this is a prominent theme in Chesterton's writing on Aquinas. An entire chapter is devoted to Thomas's refutation of the dualism of the Manichaeans. It is also present in Chesterton's depiction of Francis as a hyper-realist concerning material things. Francis, he insists, was not a lover of mankind, but a lover of this and that human being. He was not a lover of nature, but a lover of this bird and that wolf. Aristotle's insistence on the reality, intelligibility, and perfection of individually existing things, his repudiation of the, uh, of the Platonist celebration of abstract universals, is for Chesterton a philosophical revolution that matches perfectly the revolution wrought in history by the incarnation of the Son of God. To Luther's query, who put Aristotle in my scripture, Chesterton would respond, it is Aristotle's philosophy that helps us understand and articulate the distinctively Christian conception of the intelligibility and perfection of created things. Both Francis and Thomas embraced the lowest things out of humility and out of a confidence, as Chesterton writes, that the humblest facts lead to the highest, highest things. The humblest things lead to the highest because they, no less than noble beings, are gifts of God. Chesterton writes in one of these brilliant, many brilliant lines, all goods look better when they look like gifts. Right? So to regard a good not just as a good, but as a gift increases its attraction and its goodness. One important theme common to Francis and Thomas has to do with the understanding of divine creation as a kind of artistic activity. Eager to defend divine freedom, but also to avoid sheer arbitrariness in divine creation, Thomas, in all of his major theological works, crafts analogies between creation and art. Of course, there are important disanalogies too, right? God creates from nothing. There's not something outside of him that he fashions in, into, uh, into something else. He creates ex nihilo. Francis quotes Thomas on precisely this point. Really interestingly, he quotes from the commentary on the physics, which is, I wonder who found that passage for him, but it's not the place you would look for this. Nature is nothing other, Aquinas writes in the passage quoted by Pope Francis, than a certain kind of art, namely God's art, impressed upon things, whereby those things are moved to a determinate end. It is if a shipbuilder were able to get timbers, the wherewithal, to move themselves to take the form of a ship. Francis goes on, since the spirit of God has filled the universe with possibilities, from the very heart of things, something new can always emerge. God's ongoing presence in creation ensures the subsistence and growth of each being and continues the work of creation. And what is St. Francis' entire canticle but a song of praise responding to the beauty and artistry of the transcendent order of all beautiful things? As Hopkins would later write, he fathers forth whose beauty knows no change. Praise him. Thomas's metaphysics of creation provides the philosophical foundations for rethinking the natural world as a contingent gift. For Chesterton, the metaphysical teachings finds mystical embodiment in the life of St. Francis. The mystic who passes through the moment when there is nothing but God, Chesterton writes, does in some sense behold 
the beginningless beginning in which there really was nothing else. He not only appreciates everything, but the nothing of which everything was made, which is to say the sheer contingency and gift status of everything that is. That the whole of creation is brought into being from no antecedent subject, as Aquinas might put it, and for the sake of manifesting God to other beings means that creation is sheer gift. What some medieval authors have called the first grace, and which uh, Russ Hittinger used as a title for one of his collections of essays on natural law. Ken Schmidt's great Marquette essay called The Gift Creation from many years ago observes, the term gift is rooted in a domain of significance that is charged with discontinuity and contingency, with risk, vulnerability, and surprise. This is the realm of the beautiful, right? Vulnerability and surprise. That's why overly didactic art is not really art. Moreover, Schmitz writes, the gift points beyond itself to its source, to a more or less apprehended giver. If we think of the entire created order as a kind of gift, what other reason could God have for creating? We might suspect that the very motive of God in creating is essentially a communication, as the Thomas Charles DeConnick writes in his remarkable little book, Cosmos, a book that puts Aquinas into conversation with 20th century evolutionary theory. DeConnick writes, if God creates, necessarily he creates in order to manifest his glory outside, not to manifest it to himself, as if by creation he could grow in his own regard. Creation is essentially a communication. His work must be capable of appreciating the gratuitous gift that communication is and, what is it, and that is achieved in the person. That is, in an intellectual creature who can give glory to his principle or source or creator. Divine creation is the conic's account of the motive of God uh, the Connick's account of the motive of divine creation enriches from a theological perspective the understanding of the human person as a creature of open-ended wonder. I think De Connick says at one point, the human creature is the only creature in the cosmos capable of taking a tour of being, right? of taking in the whole. It's a beautiful phrase. Human self-knowledge on this view involves metaphysics, and cosmology, history, and paleology. DeConnick writes in a striking section, we will only be able to understand ourselves when we understand the universe. Our present is filled with the past. This is a fairly sophisticated justification for calling Earth our common home, as the subtitle of Laudato Si puts it. Now Chesterton's reference to Thomas, Jefferson's reference to Thomas's development of the account of divine creation is complemented in Chesterton by his reference to Thomas as a kind of poet. And this hints at an important and again neglected feature of Aquinas' thought, namely his attention to the beautiful. Human makers do not create ex nihilo, but they are able to transcend the givenness of things and to refashion them for the sake of art from the mundane to the sublime. 
Thomas would certainly affirm Tolkien's notion that humans are sub-creators. Francis writes, our capacity to reason, to develop arguments, to be inventive, to interpret reality, and to create art are signs of a uniqueness which transcend the spheres of physics and biology. Labor, he writes, is meant to be fruitful. We are not merely passive recipients of God's creative activity. We are active participants in it. Human beings, even if we postulate a process of evolution, the Pope writes, also possess a uniqueness which cannot be fully explained by the evolution of other open systems. Our ability to reason, to create art, are signs of a uniqueness uh, unknown in the universe. We have already noted Francis's claim that it is a mark of the nobility of the human vocation that persons participate in God's creative action. Of course, this is where we're most likely to go astray, to think of ourselves as lords of nature, with the freedom to remake it according to our wishes. So the vision of ourselves as makers is the condition of our greatest and most self-destructive temptations. This is something that will show up in uh, when I talk tomorrow about Maritan, is a, a real great appreciation of this great capacity for making and also the great temptation that is built into it. It's also unavoidable that we see ourselves as makers and act on that vision. Does that leave us in a tragic predicament? No, the way out is through a renewed sense of our poetic calling, a renewed practice of steward stewardship, a practice central to Francis' ecological vision. LS explicitly calls for, at one point, an aesthetic education in section 215 that would foster the virtues of wonder, receptivity, humility, gratitude, and joy. These virtues are elaborated in 220 through 232. Francis calls for a conversion to gratitude and gratuitousness, a recognition that the world is God's loving gift and that we are called quietly to imitate his generosity and self-sacrifice and good works. Okay, so much for uh, this summary of Laudato Si and my claim that there's a deep uh, parallel between what Francis is doing in his use of St. Francis and St. Thomas and Chesterton's use. I want to take up now a, uh, a couple of objections to one to uh, a, a reading of Aquinas that I've just given and then a couple of objections to the document Laudato Si which I think have some merit. So one might wonder how the accent on the beautiful and on gratitude and generosity squares with Thomas's argument, which he gives in a number of places, that the ultimate end of human life is the intellectual contemplation of the highest being. This looks like a, a straightforward focus on the satisfaction of the intellect. It also looks pretty individualistic. It's me staring at the divine essence. Deep misreading of Aquinas, but a common one. I think the best way to correct that misreading, which uh, in terms of its text can be found in the very beginning of the Secunda Pars, right, on the ultimate end, but Thomas turns at the end of the Secunda Pars to the question of the best way of life, right? Is it a purely contemplative life or is it a mixed life of contemplation and action? Not surprisingly, he defends the Dominican way of life as a mixed life of contemplation and action. But his articulation of it is hardly arbitrary. I think it's actually deeply Christocentric. In fact, at one point he says, this is the best life because Christ chose this life. 
And the life of contemplation, of course, has its roots in the affections. Generally, in the natural longing to know and gain wisdom about the highest things. Specifically, within the life of faith, in that, as Aquinas writes, in um, question 180, articles 1 and 7, from the love of God we are inflamed to behold his beauty. But the beholding of God's beauty gives rise to the activities of teaching, preaching, and the practice of the virtues. The active life, Aquinas says, arises from the fullness of contemplation. Our participation in the life of God means not only contemplating, creation as a means of achieving union with God. It also entails imitating his communication to us through creation and the incarnation, his descent, his emptying of himself in order to meet us where we are. And that, in turn, is a pretty good description of the life of St. Francis, whose contemplation of the crucified Christ so formed him that he received the stigmata and emptied himself, not only in contemplation, but in service of others. I think that this account, I don't have this worked out uh, for today's lecture, but I think in terms of our topic of uh, arts, beauty, and public life, right, our shared public life, I think Aquinas's account of the way in which the contemplation, the Christian understanding of the contemplation of beauty naturally overflows into preaching, teaching, service, and the practice of the virtues. This indicates that beauty for us as believers can never be merely a matter of me satisfying my desire for the beautiful. Because what we're ultimately contemplating when we contemplate the beautiful is a life that empties itself out on behalf of others. So the turn to others, the turn to a public communal experience is built into Aquinas' account of the contemplation of the beautiful. Okay, I've asked you to sort of think differently. Uh, I don't know how many of you have read La Dacosi, uh, but you certainly have impressions of it from what you've read about it. I've asked you to think differently about that document, whether you read it or not. And I want to raise some questions about it, but they're not just about it. They're about what I would call the standard, what has become the standard Catholic critique of modernity. Um, the, the contemporary political philosopher Pierre Manet has raised questions about the kind of, the, the mode of making this sort of critique. And Manet has in mind the thesis that modernity is a social, political, and cultural phenomenon arises from philosophical ideas, bad philosophical ideas, nominalism, voluntarism, mechanism, radical anthropocentrism. This is, this is all over the place in the genealogies of modernity, particularly from a Catholic perspective. And I must confess that I've fallen prey to this on many occasions myself. Manette distinguishes between the causality of ideas and the causality of motives. I think this is important because I think those of us who are given to ideas like think, oh, there's SCOTUS. Everything's, everything's going to hell right after right after SCOTUS. Um, don't, don't tell some of our friends in the philosophy department I said that. <laughs> Manette objects to this assumption that ideas have causal force all by themselves. As he puts it, I think rightly, an idea as such is not a motive. Ideas enter into, he writes, historical argument only in relation to a political situation or problem that they formulate and seek to resolve. 
So the political thought of Hobbes might well be inconceivable without, or at least most convincingly articulated in terms of nominalism, voluntarism, mechanism. But that doesn't explain why so many took some version of the Leviathan's vision of the human condition seriously. You can't just trot out the ideas and say they're influential, therefore everybody finds it attractive. That has to do, as Manette lays it out, with a particular configuration of human experience, accentuated, a universal experience, but accentuated in certain ways in the early modern period. A configuration having to do with human fear, fear about power, violence, and death. And like most big narratives, Catholic narratives often do conflate the causality of ideas with the causality of motives. The ideas of autonomy, anthropocentrism, and biocentrism are often introduced as if the mere identification of faulty ideas is sufficient to explain the course of modern culture. Francis claims that our relationship with nature has in the modern period, 106, become what he calls confrontational. That seems right to me. But we're, and we're, we're more like this all the time. But were the motives that gave rise in the early modern period to the project of conquering nature entirely unnatural or even peculiarly modern? It wasn't just the absence of rational politics, the threat of civil war, the presence of nominalism, etc., that made pre-modern life poor, nasty, brutish, and short. It was in many ways. Think of the of infant, the percentage of infants who never made it out of infancy in this period. Think of what your mouth would feel like if you didn't have modern dentistry. It was nature itself, which is often inhospitable to human longing. Laudato Si also proposes that what has been lost are dispositions toward nature characterized by wonder, humility, gratitude, and awe. I agree. And I agree that those ought to be foundational. The project of technological control diminishes both the appreciation and the practice of these dispositions. But these are not the only attitudes that nature naturally inspires, we might say. One might ask, does not nature also inspire fear, dread? even horror, and a reasonable urge to want to temper nature's ill effects. Indeed, Francis said, as I've already quoted, it's reasonable that we temper nature's ill effects through technology. But these motives are rarely probed deeply in the modern Catholic critique of technophidism and radical anthropocentrism. It, it does seem to me that there are places, and the document's been accused of this. I don't think it's as guilty of this as some people say. But it, it does succumb at certain points to a kind of naive romanticism about nature. Nature is always permitted as complementary, presented as complementary and harmonious. And that our disposition toward it ought to be one of gratitude, receptivity, and wonder. Contemporary theologian Dennis Edwards draws our attention in the document, he worries about this problem and uh, draws our attention to the theme of universal communion. The cosmos is a family that excludes nothing and no one. As Laudato Si puts it, everything is related and we human beings are united as brothers and sisters on a wonderful pilgrimage woven together by the love God has for each of his creatures 
and which also unites us in a fond affection with Brother Sun, Sister Moon, Brother River, and Mother Earth. As Edwards and others have noted, it remains unclear, first of all, what precise obligations such a familial notion of created beings imposes on us. Moreover, it seems almost as if nature in Laudato Si is presented as exclusively pacific and harmonious. Edwards thinks this is a problem with the document, but he thinks it's not a fatal problem. He reflects on the quotation toward the end of the document from John of the Cross, who speaks of nature, who describes natural things as the sublime realities of God. Something can be spoken of as sublime, Edwards writes, when it throws our notions of reason, order, and proportion into confusion. This is rooted in Kant and others, the distinction between the beautiful and the sublime, where the beautiful strikes me as something that's proportionate to my expectation, whereas the sublime is something that disorders, right? shocks me, throws me out of uh, a zone in which I'm comfortable and see everything as intelligent. He says the notion of sublime communion in the document could be developed to embrace what is not taken up in Laudato Si, namely the pain, the death, the chaos, the seeming randomness, the ugliness of so much of the natural world. Even before human beings became aware of the vastness of the cosmos or of the duration of time required for the development of life, they were aware of the tensions between nature's ways and the ways of human longing. The desire to relieve or temper that tension is quite natural. Even if standard Catholic genealogies admit the important role technology has played, the standard story tends to be forgetful of the underlying motivation. Another way to raise the question about the adequacy of this cosmology concerns the notion of Earth as our common home. And here I do have a slight criticism of the document. There is certainly a great deal of truth in the claim, but the full truth about the human abode on Earth is more complicated and deeply paradoxical. A corollary to nature's inhospitality is human person's restlessness in the face of all created goods. We are open-ended creatures, endlessly capable of conceiving ways of transcending and altering whatever place we happen to inhabit. We don't need to go far in scripture to find some comments on this. Perhaps the most direct is St. Paul saying, we have here no lasting city. We are, as medieval thinkers were fond of saying, wanderers or pilgrims on the earth. Each of us is a homo viator. Augustine, right, the opening page of the Confessions, our heart is restless until it rests indeed. And one way to describe, I steal this from the um, uh, from uh, a good friend who died uh, far too young, Peter Lawler, one way to describe the project of enlightened utilitarian rationalism is that it seeks to transform human nature with the result that human persons would no longer be capable of experiencing themselves 
as unsettled or homeless in what is apparently their natural habitat. Lawler argues at one point that the task for us, based on his reflection on Percy, is to be at home with our homelessness. Some ability to be at home with the fact that we are, in a sense, homeless in the cosmos. A certain strain of modernity, Lawler writes, aims to tame and domesticate the wildest animal of all, the only animal that is a problem to and for itself, namely us. Of course, the Christian account does not treat violence and disharmony as coextensive with the nature of being. But it is important to make clear how this differs from other conceptions of nature, its disharmony and evil. Maritam writes at one point, I think this is relevant, the philosopher's experience itself has been revitalized by Christianity. He is offered as a datum, a world that is the handiwork of the word. Everything bespeaks the infinite spirit. Here, as it were, a fraternal attitude toward things and reality is suggested. Such a fraternal attitude in its Christian roots is not naively romantic. It includes an account of the alienation of human persons from nature through original sin. It has as its centerpiece the transformation of the entire cosmos through the crucifixion of Christ, not through a return or reversion to some lost state of innocence as we find in the Romantics in Rousseau and Wordsworth most dramatically and most beautifully in some ways in particular. The same saint, Francis, celebrated for his affirmation of nature, was also known for bearing the marks of the stigmata. These are the elements in a renewed account of Christian making that need to be at the center and not at the periphery. So let me mention just a couple things here by way of conclusion that I hope to develop over the next couple days. So we need, I think, from Laudato Si, we need a revitalized conception of human making that would understand human beings to be transcending the givenness of nature. That is, in some sense, arranging things so that something new comes into our experience. That means that the notion of making as, as mimesis has got to be broad and not narrow. It's not a mere uh, photographic representation of the natural world. It's also the case that this conception of making should foster in us certain kinds of virtues of gratitude, awe, wonder, humility. It should help to reorient us, not just respect to this or that feeling, but with respect to the cosmos. It is a real deficit, I think, of most of modern Christian art that it focuses just on, and quite successfully in many ways, but focuses just on little dramas of the human order. We don't have an art that inscribes typically the human order within the cosmos, so that we find our place within the whole. Terence Malick is an exception to this in contemporary filmmakers, um, and I hope to show that um, uh, Georges Rouault, the great French painter who was uh, personal friends with Jacques Maritain on Wednesday, I hope to show that his art does this as well. So we've got to find our 
place as human beings, not just with respect to one another, but with respect to the cosmos and with respect to what one another contemporary artist calls the built environment that I think Dr. Best will have a lot to say about in his lectures. But it also cannot be, even as it fosters these ecological virtues, it cannot be naively romantic about nature. It can't engage in what we might call facile transcendence. It has to go, the comedy, the Christian comedy always goes through, or as Northam Fry uh, puts it in his little book on T.S. Eliot, the Christian comedy always contains a tragedy as its penultimate act. Right? So it's only through tragedy that we get the happy ending in the Christian view. It's not by avoiding it or reverting to some innocence that's pre-conscious, pre-adult, pre-civilization, pre-rational in the way the romantics do it. So it would take the complexity of the universe, the way in which our experience, especially in a fallen world, is reasonably an experience of dread and fear as well as one of wonder. And finally, it must be an art that issues in praise. It must be an art that brings us finally to Laudato Si. Thank you.